Welcome to the Strength Coach Experience Podcast. Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Lego. Your host. And here we and here we go, go, go. Uh, welcome everyone to the Strength Coach Experience, uh, episode number thirty-two. Um, today, I want to welcome Rick Franzblu from Clemson. He is the director of Olympic Sports there. Rick, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it, and, and I'm excited to get get the conversation started. Yeah, sure thing, Joe. Appreciate you uh, taking some time to talk with me. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, uh, definitely want to have you on here. Uh, so why don't we just start in the beginning, you know, growing up, we just talked about before the show, you know, growing up in Rochester and kind of, uh, you know, how your uh, sports career started and then how we got into coaching. Yeah, um, I think pretty, pretty typical was growing up, played a lot of different sports. So football, baseball, basketball, then going into high school, just football and baseball. Um, and then as I was kind of finishing up high school career, I had a bunch of injuries. So I actually had a four surgeries before heading into college, uh, me, one on the shoulder. Um, so I kind of knew leaving high school that hopefully I'd get a full college career in, but, um, I knew there were some odds working against me. So I ended up having two more operations in college and and medically, uh, DQing, uh, as a football player at Colgate. Uh, but that's what really kickstarted my strength conditioning career. So actually my junior, senior year and in high school, I kind of knew this was the route I wanted to go, and, and Colgate didn't have a extra science or kinesiology program, but they did have a uh, an internship program for for current student athletes. So I knew, and and they had some people leave the program, go on to um, to full time careers in collegiate strength and conditioning. So I knew at a pretty young age this is what I wanted to do, uh, and then kind of. You know, the football career ending earlier than I wanted kind of expedited things. But um, as one door closed, another one opened and, and afforded me some uh, some opportunities to really get my feet wet at, a, at an early age, uh, really 20 years old. I really started spending, you know, five or six hours a day in collegiate weight room. And by by the time I was a senior, uh, Rusty Bernie was a director there and he, he really helped me out and introduced me to some new things. But um, I was kind of helping them run groups by the time I was a senior in college. So, uh, unfortunately I didn't get to play out the whole college football career, but, um, it really did kind of help me along and kind of expedite some of my development as a strength coach, um, with kind of the injuries and what my path was. Yeah. Uh, great story. I think that's a lot of, of people that get into this, you know, we, we play the sports, but then we get injured and then you, you still want to stay involved. Uh, and I think there's always that want to figure out why you got injured. You know, why did this happen? Could I have fixed it? Uh, you know, is there something that I could have done or if I was, you know, not to blame the people you were around, but was there somebody, you know, that, that missed the ball, you know, maybe they could have taught me something different. I mean, my personal story, I got her deadlifting, you know, I'm sure there's, uh, when you started, were you always into to lifting weights? Was it something that you did, um, you know, you enjoyed, uh, and you knew that it would kind of help your sporting career in, in high school and stuff like that? Yeah, I, I just had a strange early passion for this. I remember, uh, probably being 10 or 11 years old and watching Rocky four and he was doing <laughs> Rocky four. Uh, so I asked my parents for like a chin up bar for my birthday. So 
Uh, it was it was certainly a, a passion and interest of mine early on, and something that I knew in some way, shape, or form. This is this is going to have to be part of my life uh, forever because I was I just had too much passion and interest in it. Yeah, no, it's one of those things where I think once you get involved, that you kind of get bit because you get the team camaraderie, but you get a bunch of teams. And then you also get to kind of like dictate where the energy and stuff goes. I think it's actually better than being on the team because at least, you know, with this, the better you get as a coach and the closer you get to your athletes, the more kind of responsibility you have to their overall development. But you get to be in charge of or not in charge, but a part of so many different groups. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it, it, uh, <clears throat> I think all of us, if you'd ask if we could keep playing, we, we definitely would. But in a lot of in a lot of ways, this is uh, this is very fulfilling in itself, too. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's fantastic. When you played or when you started in sports, were you a, a vocal guy on the field? Were you like a captain type or were you type more to let your actions speak? Was the coaching thing kind of always in you as a player? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. But um, I think I led more by example and, and probably talking in front of my peers and, and teammates wasn't something that was an innate ability or came to me naturally. Um, but just kind of leading by work ethic and passion and determination, those types of things. I was actually fairly uncomfortable with that uh, in terms of, yeah, I was a captain with different teams and all that in the past, but speaking in front of the team and all that was something that I didn't, you know, there's a little apprehension and nerves behind that. Um, so I knew in some ways from I wanted to get in coaching, but that was, that was an aspect and an avenue I had to work on over time. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Uh, I think that's something that uh, a lot of us are faced with in the beginning because we play the sports, but we understand the, the hard work in the in the background is the most important thing very early on. But with that, I think that comes with not being vocal. That comes with just being the first person at practice, the last person to leave, and the person to do the extra work. But we don't want to talk about it. You know, you're just there, you do your thing, and you, you're just kind of hoping that guys pick up on it. But if they don't, you're not going to start – yelling at people and anything else. So I think that's a, a trade along the line is the speaking in front of people and leading groups is, is kind of the last thing that we have to work on and kind of learn how to be vocal and kind of learn how to make those connections. Yeah, definitely. I think particularly nowadays, just how much communication young coaches coming up, you know, how much they're doing that isn't face to face and having to, to verbalize and vocalize in front of large groups is a, a skill that necessitates greater experience and exposure nowadays than it did even 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with, you know, the social media stuff. Uh, you know, one video can change your whole career, especially depending on the size of your platform. Uh, if it looks good, it's good. If you act a certain way, you know, everybody thinks that's how you are. And I, I think there's, you know, there's a lot more emphasis on that vocal now because, you know, we identify people with 15 second videos of them talking in their backyard. And if it's interesting, that's great. If it's not, then we never talk about it. So I think that's a big thing now, you know, especially now vocalization and, and your communication skills as a coach are, are kind of what separates you and, and what kind of brings you up in the, in the industry. Yeah, definitely. All right. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, I think that communication is, is a huge thing. So why don't we go through a little bit, you know, when you, you said you started at Colgate, it was something you knew you wanted to do. Uh, how did you kind of grow at Colgate? What are some of the stuff, you know, some of the things uh, that your head did uh, in order to help you kind of get out of that shell and, and learn to be a great communicator while at, while at Colgate? Yeah, I think, uh, honestly, a lot of it was just uh, throwing me into the fire a little bit and then uh, kind of reviewing and debriefing afterwards. So, 
you know, I was, I was great, you know, one-on-one communication with the athlete, or maybe if I'm watching these two platforms. So, you know, at first, maybe they were giving me two platforms. Hey, watch these guys, coach them up, cue them, those types of things. Uh, and then eventually, excuse me, with a larger group, uh, I think the first one I had was like women's tennis, which I didn't program or anything, but just we had two strength coaches in 20-something sports. So by me running a group, I gave the full-time coaches a chance to get off their feet for at least five minutes a day. Um, but it was like women's tennis, eight or nine girls, uh, a little bit smaller setting. So kind of slowly um, putting putting me in a situation which I would be challenged, but not to the point of feeling defeated and, and um, you know, losing confidence in, in what I was able to do. So, you know, trial by fire, getting uh, accustomed to it, uh, learning and growing from each from each uh, experience and also having a chance I think really important with the young coaches to, to kind of debrief and talk with them afterwards. What, what went well, what didn't, what can we do to make it better next time? And just slowly getting more and more of those experiences to where, you know, I remember running uh, men's basketball a couple of times before I finished up undergrad and, and other sessions. So um, just smarting small in a, in an area, kind of the growth zone where you're challenged, but not uh, overburdened and, um, just getting, getting the chance to, to feel it out. Yeah, absolutely. I think you bring up two key points. Uh, everybody out there that's listening who is ahead or, you know, wants to be, uh, throwing somebody in the fire, I think, is the best way, especially in this field. That's the same thing uh, that happened to me. I showed up one day. Uh, my coach sent me a workout the night before. I showed up the next day. He calls me and goes, I'm not going to make it. I want you to run this circuit on the field with 35 people. And I sat there. First, I almost passed out. And then, you know, I, I ended up being able to get the equipment out there, but that experience taught you, you know, it's okay to fail because it's not the end of the world as long as you understand it. And I think the second thing is that deep breathing and communication. You know, it's great to have a structure. It's great to have something that you know works, but without the feedback from your interns or just anybody that you're trying to teach, it's not going to get any better. So I think being able to throw somebody in the fire and say, okay, now do you understand what you messed up or, or what the negative was. Okay. Now do you understand that's a positive? And then that most important part, what do you think about today? How did you do? How did you think you did? You know, because if I think you did bad, you know, or, and you think you did phenomenal, we're always going to have a, an issue. So I think that's very important. And I think that's a great job of, of the guy that you was your head where he was able to trust you enough to throw you in the fire because he was confident enough in your abilities, but also allow you your opinion and kind of your say in whether or not the stuff you were doing a made sense to you and B was, was being productive in your career. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, I think now in our program, how it's evolved is we have our own kind of built-in coaching certification. So for all of our key lifts, our, our interns have to show proficiency in coaching and evaluating all these different movements. So there is some requisite knowledge and coaching ability that's in place. And then at first we'll give them an opportunity to run a warm-up session, to run a cool down and those types of things. So it's kind of, embedded into the system that they develop some of these skills, some of these confidence and abilities, coaching a one-on-one, and then, you know, starting with a warm-up, starting with introducing a lift, running through a lift, and then eventually, you know, maybe a whole session or, or whatever we, we kind of deem is, is an appropriate growth and challenge for them. Yeah, I think that's great uh, step-by-step system. So it's basically a kind of like a tier system that exposes them to more and more groups and more kind of more difficult situations uh, over time once once they get there yeah yeah i think that's a good way to put it yep 
That's great. Uh, is that only, is that interns or is that everybody that, that comes to Clemson and, and wants to work there? So it's interns, uh, you know, obviously our full-timers, usually our GAs are former interns. So they've kind of been through that already. Um, that's kind of how we hire and promote in those positions and full-timers a lot of times are previous GAs, or maybe they have come from another institution. Um, but that kind of ties into our overall philosophy is we really centralize everything. Um, so we're all speaking, there's a nomenclature, there's a system, there's a rhyme and reason uh, that's developed collectively. And really for us, and hopefully I'm not getting off too much in tangent here, Joe, but um, in the Olympic sports setting is, you know, usually most programs are in our estimation, at least strength coach un- understaffed to a certain degree, right? Yep, absolutely. I think every underpaid, place- certainly underpaid. So our job as directors are to facilitate uh, and help the upward trajectory of our assistants in their career. So we know we're going to have people moving in and out of positions fairly regularly. So with that being said, turnover, being understaffed, centralizing the program was probably the, the, the most important to, thing to me when I first moved into this position was from our, our nomenclature, our progressions, our methods, all these different things. So it makes it much easier to plug and play staff members when you have a centralized approach and also in my communication with sports, uh, it helps ease that transition so much is one of the biggest apprehensions or fears a sport coach will have is one, one coach leaves, one strength coach leaves, they fear the next person is going to come in and do something completely different, right? So when you have these things in place, you kind of, you know, appease the, the apprehensions and fears of sport coaches and all those different things to really help have continuity with, uh, you know, knowing you're going to have often changing uh, pieces of your program. Yeah, no, absolutely. No tangent. Uh, I love it. I'm actually happy you brought it up because I I think that's a great idea. uh, And I think that's something that should be more globalized because you are right. You know, being in the college setting as well, the problem is, is even as a GA, I I never thought, you know, when I was a GA, I ended up leaving early when I got hired in professional baseball. And I didn't want to go because I felt I owed at least my two years to the kids that stood in front of me as freshmen. And I'm like, I I got you for two years, you know, or you have kids that came in as sophomores and you're like, I'm going to help you get drafted, move on to the next level, make you a better human being. And now you're leaving and you feel bad, but I think that's amazing. And and that's a great implication because now everybody knows what they're going to get all the way through, right? Because I'm sure, you know, you've seen it. I've seen it hundred percent. You have somebody that works great and then they leave, you know, whether, you know, different job, better opportunity, or just by, you know, their degrees over and things. And then what happens, your whole, your whole um, kind of philosophy or your camaraderie goes down and now we have to start over. And I never really understood, and, and this isn't anything against schools, but why that, you know, sports and eligibility is four years, but as a GA, it's only two. I think at least they should try to, okay, every strength coach gets freshman to senior, at least one class. You're in charge for, of the 2000, you know, 20 class. Uh, and I think the other thing is that's great is you're, you're looking out for, you know, the, the future and, and you've identified something that nobody really wants to talk about. Strength and conditioning is high turnover. Why? Because we don't make money. Right. And I don't think it's a good idea or, or sometimes you go to places and you start at the bottom and you have to go through this huge kind of fraternity ringer, if you will, to gain respect. And that takes seven months when in reality you might be gone in 
a year or two and you haven't really learned anything. You're just being, you know, getting ice, getting water bottles, all those things that we've all had to go through. And I don't think that's, that's an ego thing. I think depending on a program, I'm not saying it's bad or good. I think it has its place, but just the things you brought up, I think that's phenomenal because you're keeping it consistent for the athletes because that's who we, you know, care about the most. And you're also preparing for that turnover that people kind of keep behind the curtain right? Oh yeah, they'll stay here forever. Not really because I'm making 20 grand. It's not real hard. I mean, I can go work at Best Buy and make more money. So I think that's an, an, an awesome issue too, to identify that and say, what is our field entail? And it feels high turnover, low pay. And if somebody gets a, an offer from a bigger, they're gone. doesn't matter what time of the season is. Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, <clears throat> it's been really, really helpful for us. We have had a lot of turnover, which most most have been moving on to uh, better, better jobs and greener pastures, which is what I want to help facilitate and promote in my position. You know, certainly, uh, and that's why I do hire people who have been within the program too, because it, it speeds up that learning curve. They've been, they know the nomenclature, they understand the system, the methods, and those things are constantly evolving. So if you have been gone for a couple of years, certainly you have to come back and learn some things, but that just helps us out so much so we can maintain continuity in that sense and then really target the other things we want to develop and grow in the program. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you keep bringing up the, the nomenclature and that language, right? It's very mm-hmm. important when you go place to place, you want to make sure all your coaches understand what you're talking about because we all have our own vocabulary. And I'm not a big fan. I'm sure you've seen people on the internet, they change exercise names because they wanted to say, I'm like, that's not good because if I send somebody an exercise I want them to be able to go on YouTube, type it in and bang. That's the first thing that comes up. You know, if I name it some weird thing. So I think that's also important when you're bringing up interns, when you have coaches, make sure you guys are all using the same language and make sure that it's, you know, transferable because it's great to have, you know, one thing or or one set of, uh, you know, themes or whatever. But if that's different for other places or it's, you know, everybody's talking in different Uh, I guess, strength and conditioning slang, if you want to call it, it makes it very hard. You know, your athletes get patterns. They're used to words and things. And, and I think it's important to kind of keep that, um, that common ground there, right? Because there's already enough stuff to confuse them with. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Let's just talk about the, the transition from uh, Colgate and then, and then kind of how you got involved as an assistant at Clemson and how that transition was for you. Yeah, this this is probably where it's a little atypical uh, for the field is uh, start as a volunteer intern uh, summer of 06 Clemson uh, working with football under Joey Batson and, and Larry Greenley. Uh, and then that uh, that moved its way into a GA position working with football and then some of the Olympic sports uh, and then eventually a uh, assistant position in Olympic sports, assistant director of Olympic sports and then uh, director of Olympic sports. So uh, in terms of professional career, it's, it's really only been one stop is obviously I got my feet wet as a student assistant at Colgate, but then I've, I've been here for my whole professional career, which has been, uh, been a blessing. It's been great. Uh, learned a lot from Joey Batson and Larry Greenlee and then, uh, Dennis Love. So I first worked under, uh, in Olympic sports and one of my best friends and he's, uh, learned an awful lot from that guy. Um, so um, I just, you know, I kept, I've always been very process oriented. So been focused on what do I need to get better at being great with my feet are and kind of seeing where it takes me. So I think like most strength coaches, when first getting in the field, I said, you know, this is kind of my end goal. I want to be at this type of school doing this, but the further I got in, I said, you know, what's most important to me is being the absolute best I can be 
provide the absolute best service for my student athletes. And if I feel fulfilled and I'm enjoying what I'm doing, I'm going to keep doing that and keep building my skill set and kind of see where it takes me. And it's, it's, I've been lucky. I haven't had to move. Uh, just been here and I, and I still feel I'm still challenged and creating opportunities that are sort of still facilitating my growth. So uh, it's been a little unique because I haven't bounced around a ton, uh, but opportunities have presented themselves here and I still had opportunities to learn and develop professionally and personally. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I think that's a great, uh, great story, you know, going through that. And I think, uh, you know, all of us look for what you got, you know, what you have, though, right? We all want to be at that school where we can live, you know, make it up. But, but the people around us constantly push us to get better. And you feel like you're you're rewarded enough for, for what you've done in the work you've put in, you know, and I think I'm a person that's bounced around a little bit. I think that comes from that, you know, trying to find that. You know, so I think it's great that you found that, you know, kind of right away, uh, you know, going there and, and meeting a group of people who, who did it the right way, you know, and understood what you wanted and, and kind of balanced your goals with theirs and, and kind of raised you up the ladder, you know, at the same pace, you know, as you got better. But I think it's also important, you said, as long as I'm here being the best I can be, but also I'm challenged every day. And I think that's another thing, you know, being complacent is never good. And I think that's always important. You want to be the best you can be, but you also want to make sure you're challenged all the time, uh, you know, and just doing this with the podcast, you notice that too. everybody at home, it's been hard to be challenged, you know, because we're used to being in weight rooms and banging around ideas and, and seeing things and scenarios and, oh, this kid, you know, he's he deadlifted 500 pounds six months ago. Now he's at 300 and this and that, you know, trying to figure things out or this kid's been sluggish, but we checked his nutrition. Everything's been great, you know, kind of problems and things to fix. And with COVID, there is not a lot of that, you know, it's all of us sitting in rooms talking like this, you know, on Zoom calls. So I think that's something that, that you bring up. That's great. You know, be, you know, the goal of this or any job should be the best you can be, but also grow, right? Make sure you're constantly growing. And when you stop growing, it's, it's time to either move on or find something else to challenge you. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's where I've, I've had to be innovative in a certain degree, in a certain sense is that, you know, uh, for the last six, seven years, I have had the same teams. I, I did, a um, hand track off a few years ago, but, uh, it's finding, avenues that still challenge you so for like baseball it's getting into mechanics and the transfer of of the of aligning hardware and software and movement solutions based off assessments and development and those types of things on the soccer and it's been the tactical periodization and the implementation of of gps and working on our micro cycle development with the the technical coaches so um those opportunities, particularly working with technology, have have allowed some opportunities to for me to still be challenged and still grow, while still being at the same location and working with similar teams over the last couple of years. And then just other initiatives that we've had in our department too have have uh, provided some opportunities. And in this day and age, uh, and what our access is to information is that, <laughs> um, you know. There's so much out there that you can you can easily find a way to challenge yourself, even if you are, you know, feel like you're living Groundhog Day doing the same thing day after day, year after year. There's just so much out there from certifications and courses and webinars and and different reading materials that you can you can find a way to still challenge yourself and grow regardless of of your your location and, and how long you've been there. Absolutely. Uh, I think there's actually so much information now that you have to you have to balance, right? Or you have to make a decision. I mean, I have a 
few, you know, a lot of coaches that are younger that, that I talk to a lot. And, and some of them, you know, when they first start out, they, they want to get every piece of information they can get their hands on. And my advice is usually pick three books or pick three people you like for each category, pick a guy who's good at deadlifts, squats, and uh, you know, power lifts or, or bigger movements, pick somebody who's good at functional training, pick a guy who's good at speed and agility, and then maybe pick a corrective person and that's it. And just learn that and then use that and then move on because if you start digging, I mean, you can, you, you'll be, you'll have a program that's seven hours long, you know, trying to fit everything in there. So I think that's important, you know, being able to grow and you bring up that information. There's so much information. I think that the, the positive is, is that it's accessible. The negative is, is there's so much, but also one of the things I have problems with is people that don't grow, right? You have people that get one system and they've been using it for 10 years. And for me, it's always, how are you stuck here? We have, all you have to do is go on Google, not that Google's the end all be all, but how do you not understand certain things? How can you not, you know, ever hear this or change it? That just means you're lazy in the field, I guess, because there is so much information, right? You have people that do, you know, Russian deadlift system, but all year round. And I'm like, how do you not know this is not the best idea? Because the information is there. So I think the thing with information is it's a bitter taste, but it's a sweet taste because there is so much there is constant challenges and there is great stuff out there, especially, I mean, I've only been in it for 10 years and just the stuff that we've done, but also there is that you have to be accountable because the information is out there and you have to be willing to learn. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And it's kind of, I think I look at it two different ways is early on in the field, you have to be a generalist and you have to feet wet and you have to have a certain requisite knowledge in all these different areas. And that's, that's kind of how we we uh, we created our internship program is we do have these core blocks and and areas in which you have to be competent enough in all these different areas. And this day and age, as a performance coach, it's a lot of different areas and disciplines within that. So it can it can be a, a challenging task. And then as you get further along, that's when you know you should start to look more into specialization. And actually, having a conversation with a, a strength coach a couple couple of months ago and. We're, we're talking about this exact topic and we we're both kind of the same frame of thought, both kind of coaches in our, our late thirties, early forties is, uh, you know, just kind of taking two main topic areas at a time and just really hammering in those. So once you do have that generalist background and you do have competency in all these different areas is then finding, you know, at certain points in your career it may not be for your entire career, but Hey, I'm going to focus on these two areas and I'm going to go a mile deep in it, uh, I think is important for your own personal development and, and relevance to wherever you're working and, and groups you're working with. Um, but it can, it can be, can become challenging as you, and I, I've certain, certainly felt overwhelmed at times is in all the different disciplines within performance training is there's so much out there as you, at certain, some point in time, you'll feel inadequate mm -hmm. in terms of your knowledge and understanding of certain areas, but you just have to understand over time, you'll, you'll have the opportunity to, to dive into all these different areas deeper, but prioritize what's, what's enticing to you and makes you feel fulfilled and gives you a chance to pursue mastery. Focus on those two at a particular point in time. And maybe you, you get to a certain point to where you feel you have a certain level of mastery and then you move on to another one or two, uh, you the same position or you're at a new position and you're forced to, to focus and dive deeper in certain areas. Uh, yeah, I think that's a great piece of advice. Um, you know, break it down into a certain number of books or topics, master that, and then, you know, and then move on from there instead of trying to learn 30 things at once or ram all of this new stuff you just got 
you know, into your programs. And I think it's, it's a great uh, thing you bring up where, you know, you'll feel inadequate because there's been lots of times, you know, I was always the type of person, same as you, I wanted to get better and always be around better coaches. So I would be, you know, set in my ways. Everything was great. I had it mastered. And then I'd go meet a coach and I would feel like I had no idea what I was doing and I maybe shouldn't have been a strength coach anymore, you know, and, and I think it's a little extreme, but I think those are important uh, things to do and constantly uh, you brought it up before. Why don't we go over some of the stuff that you will we'll bring it, you know, primarily baseball, soccer, uh, some of the things you do, uh, some of the technologies you use and, and kind of uh, some of the things you guys believe in and different things that you guys do in the programs. Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess just kind of looking at our a long-term athlete development model. So for baseball, it's, it always has to align and, foundation has to come from the vision and recruiting philosophy of the head coach in the program. So, uh, you know, it'd be baseball and, and coach Lee, Monty Lee, um, you know, we're recruiting athletic guys. So my model for our long-term athletic program for position players and even for most of our pitchers as well is we're recruiting guys who a lot of times played multiple sports, really good athletes uh, are not really physically mature at the point in which leaving high school, that's what we're kind of relying on, on our physical prep program at Clemson. Uh, so our model is based off your typical skinny athletic baseball player in high school, right? So that's generally who we're recruiting higher skill set, athletic, but not very physically mature at this point in time. So when that's what's coming in, the purpose of a model is for to, to nomenclature within your organization, right? So I can speak to the technical staff, I can speak to my assistants who help out and interns and whatnot. And then also to have a rhyme and reason over uh, behind the qualities we're going to develop throughout the course of their entire career. So if I look at a model, it's kind of like a standard bell curve, right? That middle 68%, 70%, that's what our development model is based off of your skinny athletic guys. So that's your six foot two, 170 pound outfielder that comes in really skilled athletic, but weak as water, right? And same thing with pitcher. We got, you know, a six foot five, 185 pound pitcher. That's generally what we're trying to go after as freshmen. So the model's based off that, but we also understand we're gonna have outliers in two different areas. So there's gonna be technical outliers and also physical outliers. So a technical outlier would be a good example. We had a guy, Seth Beer in 2016, he was national player of the year as a freshman and one of the weakest guys on the team. And as a junior senior, he left as a junior. You should repeat that for everybody listening. So, you yeah. know, I think that's very important. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, shoot, you know, he, he worked hard. He got stronger, but, and I'll, I'll get into this, but he had the outputs. He's one of the best power hitters in the country. You can look at exit velocity. You can look at bat speed, rotational acceleration, all those different bat sensor, pre-contact, post-contact data. He's elite while being weak as water. Okay? And at the end, the end result is what we want are those outputs out in the field, right? So if he's already achieving them without a lot of weight room strength, okay, when we're working through our development model, he does not need to stay in the developmental one block where we're, we're chasing relative strength for a long, long time, right? There's not a lot of return on that investment. What he needed to do was focus on becoming a better athlete. So that's kind of our technical outliers. We also have physical outliers. So we have a, uh, a sophomore catcher right now, really strong guy. He lifted a good bit in high school, um, Catcher, fairly athletic, but needed to get more athletic. Uh, we need to work on his defense, his mobility. 
So for him, he moved through our developmental one block, which focused on relative strength hypertrophy very quickly, okay? For a physical type reason, because we had to put time and energy into becoming more elastic, speed strength, uh, and his, his cost of adaptation needed to come from other things. So we have our middle guy, okay? we have our technical outliers, physical outliers, and then our different blocks, our ground zero, our introductory block, our developmental one, where we're chasing a lot of relative strength and hypertrophy because it transfers the sport well at that point in time, right? We're recruiting skinny athletic guys, okay? Get them stronger and they just maintain their athleticism. Nine times out of 10, they're gonna be a better ball player, okay? But as they start to progress through that program, there comes a point in time with which there's returns, right? So then developmental two, we're focusing more on power, speed, strength. We're starting to individualize some of our sprint programming, all those different things. And eventually, potentially they move into the advanced programming, which is based off a lot of different features. But what's most important, okay, is we do a player development assessment for each guy. You got to know where are the stressors being applied for each player, right? So we'll, we'll look at their speed, if it's a position player, their speed, their offensive power, their offensive skill, their defensive agility, their speed, their wellness, uh, their mental game. What's the, what's the bucket that we need to fill up the most and has the most return on investment while also considering what's the cost of adaptation, right? The other thing too is if I have a junior who's a, a, going to be a big draft guy, Okay, say it's a pitcher and he throws 96, 97, the outputs are there and he's one of the strongest guys in the room. Okay, we only have so much of that cup to fill up for adaptation, right? There's something has to give. So it's important we have our model. Okay, but what's most important, and we do have some strength standards which help them kind of progress throughout different stages. The end, but at the end of the day, they're guidelines, they're not governing laws right? Because we have all these different factors that we're considering, right? Like that, I was talking about our technical outlier. He doesn't need to get to two and a half times body weight on a trap bar deadlift to progress, okay? He already hits the ball 112 miles that, mm-hmm. right? Like, I don't give a shit about that, okay? <laughs> there's, there's too much risk involved in that. So models are important and helpful, and usually they'll direct you for that middle 65% if you're kind of, if it's aligned with recruiting philosophy, but you have to also understand the outliers and understand all these different parameters, which help you decide how they move through the model. Cause the model is not the end in itself, but it's a means to the end of making them a better ball player. I think that's where some people get into trouble with their models is they're just focused on the model itself and the physical development. It has to be, how does the model transfer the sport and performance on the field? Absolutely. I had a podcast a few weeks ago. We talked about the mother Chuck stuff, you know, making sure that Mm -hmm. everything that you do or everything they do in the weight room has a direct effect on what they're doing on the field and is measurable because if you're not doing, you know, if the things you're doing in the weight room don't work in the, on the field, then we're wasting our time. And I think it's great that you, first of all, the recruiting completely agree, right? We want athletic kids, but you don't want them at peak muscle mass and you don't want them at peak power output. You want, you know, very good patterns in all planes, but a little lower on the totem pole in strength. That way you can take your expertise and, and kind of build them the way you want and make sure that they're growing in the right places. I think that's fantastic. And I love that part for everybody listening. I'll say it again. The best and most powerful player on the team on the field was the weakest person in the weight room. So everybody understands 
right? That's what we're gunning for, not to deadlift 600 pounds for their exit velo to be up, for their throwing to be up and for them to be ready and be able to do the things on the field. And I also, just to touch on that last point, I think it's great you talk about, you know, how far is that cup full, right? If you have a kid that deadlifts 500 pounds and his exit velo and his force plate numbers are the most, we, we don't have a lot more that we can do, right? Or to the flip side, if you have a kid like the one you bought up where he's strong and, and everything he's doing is, is well on the field and he's the best in the nation, we're not going to screw around with that by trying to get his bench press higher, right? I think it's a very important thing, to, and I constantly talk about it. We're trying to make them better at their sport, not make a YouTube video with them deadlifting 600 pounds. And I think it falls into – you know, one of the things you talk about, if you don't understand the technology, it becomes harder to understand it. And I also think that if you don't know what you're doing, and I'm not being negative or coming after people, but it's a lot easier to say, look, they squatted 600 pounds because, and because of that, they throw 95 instead of they throw 95. And then because of that, they just happen to be able to deadlift 600 pounds. Yeah, and that's a great point, Joe. And I think in an ideal world, this is what I'm looking for. I want them to be able to throw 95 with the least amount of weight room strength as possible. Well, within reason, obviously Mm -hmm. if they're too weak and they're throwing that hard, there are other risks involved. But what I'm saying is I want the cost of adaptation in the weight room to be as low as possible while achieving the outputs on the field. Right. Okay. If I have to get somebody throwing 95 via deadlifting 600, okay. There's other risks involved. Okay. And and then I could go into a whole bunch of other stuff and I'm doing a, the hitting presentation here um, in a little bit, but uh, you know, one of the most important things you have to look at is what is each athlete's movement signature and force signature, right? So if I'm looking at hitting, they could be more of a linear type mover or more of a rotational type mover. Okay. So if I say like a Christian Yelich, there's a, he's a really fashionably driven guy. He relies on big, redirections of the body and separation and bigger moves to create energy and momentum, right? Now, if I take somebody like that and I just heavy, sagittally plane, bilateral lift the hell out of them, okay? The body as an adaptation, okay? Your body's looking to do two things in movement. One, to conserve energy, right? Be metabolically conservative, right? That's how you survive as a human being, right? To prevent shear force, right? So how do I prevent shear force and heavy lifts? I compress the hell out of myself anterior to posterior, right? To protect your discs and your spine. So what happens is I do that more and more, I become wider and wider and wider, and I lose more rotational capabilities in my trunk, my ribs, my infrasternal angle, my floating ribs. I can't externally and internally rotate them and alternate and reciprocate, right? So that's fine if I'm a big monster and more of a linear mover as a hitter, right? So think like Cabrera or Trout or some of these guys that are more kickback, right? Versus a Yelich or like a Bo Bichette, who's a young, young prospect, but a real Blue Jays, right? driven type guy. What's that? Blue Jays, right? Yeah, Blue yeah, yeah, yeah. Shortstop. Yep, yep. Um, you have to understand these things. So, you know, like Bichette, he's a shortstop. If you keep doing that, he's going to lose, lose movement variability and he's going to have to become a third baseman or he's not going to run as well. Or if, you know, he's that efficient moving in that manner with these bigger movements, more fastly driven, and then you compress the hell out of him, that's a big risk to take if he's already a good hitter. So you have to understand these things too as you're progressing throughout your development model, right? 
in what position are if they're a first baseman and they're more of a linear move you don't care about them running it's not a premium defensive position you know what like pete alonzo right for the mets okay i, loved him. I had him in 2017 <laughs> he's a monster right like he can probably go to the well and needs to to be good for the rest of his career okay but other guys you know deadlifting and and heavy squatting and those types of things yeah, they can still be part of the program, but you got to monitor volumes and you have to look at these structural adaptations as well to the training and what their force signature is as a hitter and make sure those things align. So it's, you know, that's why I talk about the model's great, but I got to understand these other things to really correctly and individually move each athlete through the model. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the other thing is the model has to fit the player, not the other way around. And I think you, you want to have a model. We, we use the model because you want to keep it, uh, you know, we want to be structured. But if, you know, the model's not going to work for everybody, and I think that's great. You brought up, you know, guys that are, you know, more rotational, bigger movements. We don't want them to compress and lose T-spine mobility and start messing around with, you know, the, the ranges of motion within the torso, within the QLs and things like that, because – then we're going to ruin their game, right? But if you have somebody who's already big and giant, we can do those heavy things. I mean, I had Alonzo in 2017. You know, Pete, I love you, but watching him run down first base is a little scary, right? He's like a juggernaut. But he swings so hard, it's unbelievable, right? But that's his game. But then, you know, when you watch him field first base, he's not the most athletic guy, but he sells out and he, you know, gets the ball. Where I knew another kid who was six foot nine, and he was like a gazelle at first base. They used to play for the Mets. Uh, so I think, you know, to your point, it's you have to identify what they are or what their patterns are, and then you have to go from there. And I think we get caught too much on these models. Yes, you need a model, but you need a model that's going to help the individual. And you need a model more to say, if somebody says, what do we do? And you say, oh, well, well, our plan here is to identify how a player moves, what kind of person they are how they develop force and then here's the steps that i'm going to use that have worked in the past to make them better however if this guy is already strong but he can't you know bench press 20 pounds he's going to come over here in the model because i only care about what's going on on the field and the stuff with the dumbbells is great that's our our you know that's where we put the water in the glass but i don't need to concentrate on that as much because the field matters and i think that sometimes gets flip-flopped and people think that the weights and the numbers in the weight room count more than where your velo is and your efficiency. Whereas if you didn't lift, but Jacob DeGrom's that way, so efficient. He doesn't go in the weight room and throw barrels around and all this stuff. He just, he's athletic and he's, he's pretty much your prototypical, what, what you guys recruit, what you were talking about. Yeah. I think all really good points too. We kind of touched upon technology is, is you have to take time to understand that. So obviously the stuff within my realm and my department, but also on the baseball side is, is I, I understand. I know every guy's bat metrics. I understand their bat speed, the rotational acceleration, time to impact. Um, I run the KVEST for, for our team. Um, all those different things. Like not to brag on that, just because I take time to learn it. And I understand how important those things are to understanding how we're progressing in the weight room. And we want to make sure that we're getting transfer. And also that our cost adaptation isn't too high too. So it's, I think that's, that's one of, you know, you talk about working with interns and younger strength coaches is one, one thing I really implore them to do is to take the time to understand those things. And when you get further in your career, and if you're just working on the baseball or soccer is 
say that's one big thing I did during COVID. I spent a lot of time talking to hitting and pitching minds and, and just diving deeper and deeper into mechanics so I could really understand transfer better and be able to speak the language with our coaches as best, best as possible. At the end of the day, Joe, Serang coaches got to spend more time understanding the sport, right, from a tactics and a technical standpoint. And sport coaches need to spend more time understanding physiology and basic biomechanics and those types, energetics, those types of things. So um, with my staff, that's what I, you know, each sport they're working with, which I really try and promote. And then on the, on the flip side, you know, spend time with our sport coaches going through some of these things. So more and more of that language can become shared. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, when I was a GA, uh, I spent all my time at practice. I was at practice every day. And, and I think that is something that's important. And it's, it's something we talked about. It's little go to practice and watch the drills, ask the coaches what this is for, you know, identify, go watch base running drills, you know, watch as much as you can, because we have to know everything that they do because like it or not, a kid is going to say, what is this doing for me? I don't like it or I'm not good at it. Where, where am I going to see my affirmation that I need two hours before we started this? You know, because we live in those times and we, and we touched on social media, you have to understand your athletes so much that it's okay. I want to use this exercise. I know it's going to help them. How can I explain this to an 18 year old kid who's tearing the cover off the ball and hitting 400 that he still needs to be good at this thing because this is going to count down the street. And I think it's so important. You brought up that, that marriage between we need to go learn the sport and we need to understand that every exercise we're doing is going to impact or not, not understand, have to be able to explain everything we're doing does something. We have a list of things on the field. Okay. This is going to help your speed break. This is going to help you swing. You're going to get more power to the opposite field. If we get better at this, because we need to be able to explain that. And then on that flip side, if the coaches would take the time to understand more kinesiology, more biomechanics, more neuroscience stuff, and understand how your body's gas tank goes down, your nervous system gets tired, and you got you know you have to have that balance of energy. But also a third point, if we show the initiative that we're going into the offices and asking about pitching charts, we're watching bullpens and we're always there. I think that will give more incentive to the coaches to kind of come and find out what we're doing because they see us at practice. They see us talking to the other coaches and they see us with the athletes and trying to learn from those younger guys about a sport, regardless if we played or we're new into it. Yeah, definitely. I think you hit on a good point too, is the why behind with the athletes. That's another, a big selling point for understanding mechanics and diving into the technology and data on the sport end of things is, it really, it really helps you sell that to your audience, the student athletes that, Hey, this is how specifically how this is going to transfer. And that's, that's probably the biggest, one of the biggest challenges for performance coaches nowadays is, is uh, obviously this millennial crowd or whatever generation they are now, they want, <laughs> want the why behind everything. Right. So being able to connect the dots is, is absolutely imperative nowadays. Yep. And I think that goes back to, you know, you can use the butter truck system in real life right? You have to make sure now, and, and whether it's right or wrong, everything I do has to be explained. And everything I do, I can explain in five minutes, you know, and whether or not that's good, that's your audience, you know? So I think that's a big deal. Just to, to piggyback right off that, what are some things that you would like to see change? Let's just say in in terms of maybe college strength and conditioning and, and in the baseball realm, what, what are some things you would like to see uh, change, you know, in any standpoint over the next couple of years? 
Yeah, uh, not specific to baseball and maybe college, but just performance industry in general is I think social media has been great from a sharing perspective uh, and understanding that, but uh, maybe this is just the old head in me, but I think too much time is being invested in self-promotion instead of self-development. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just me personally, Joe, I, uh, I think maybe I started a Twitter like five years ago, but didn't really do anything with it until uh, kind of like the end of COVID. I was like, all right, well, I, I guess I, I've done this long enough. I think I have some good stuff to share. I'll, I'll start putting it out there. But I think it's just like the, the young athletes we work with is the young coaches coming through uh, are hungry and motivated, which is great. But there is a, a sense of entitlement and everybody's voice has been earned when it hasn't. Uh, so, you know, I've been doing this for 16, 17 years and there's people I look up to them doing a lot longer than me a lot better than me for a greater period of time. And to be honest, I just, at 37 years old, I finally felt comfortable. I was like, you know what? I think I've, I've earned a voice. I'm going to start sharing stuff, but there's just a, a real lack of humility to get to that point is, you know, I've done this for 16 or 17 years. And I finally, you know, I think I've earned a, a voice to a certain degree to share and, and give my thoughts on some certain things. By no means do I think I'm an expert in anything, but I feel, you know, everybody gets their undergrad, they do an internship, and now it's, oh, I, I got to put stuff on social media to promote and get into positions. And, and I'm sure there's, there's, uh, there's some worth to that and value, and it is important. And we, we run a, uh, a strong Instagram um, account for our department, but that's mainly for helping recruit interns and those types of things. But I feel like the focus has been, has been flipped, and there's been a a paradigm shift in the wrong direction is it needs to be development be great where your feet are develop your skill set impress people from face-to-face interactions versus um you know what you put in your social media content is it i'd say that and also two ears one mouth and you got them for a reason right is don't try and be the smartest I, i've sat in rooms where i had people with a couple years of experience Okay, and we're at a round table or whatever, and they're doing all, all the fucking talking, right? Which I like because I, I would much rather listen and ask questions. But um, I think there's too much of, of uh, particularly young coaches trying to be the smartest one in the room versus asking questions and truly listening and trying to glean something from these conversations, right? So it's promotion over development, and I think uh, talking over listening, which maybe they go hand in hand to a certain degree. And, and that's not to, you know, to shit on the younger generation of strength coaches. It's kind of the, the opportunity that's, that's in front of them. But, and I will say they have some skill sets. I, man, I'm trying to go back in time to, to catch up with them. And they're really impressive in that regards. And, and I commend them for that doing an awesome job, but uh, that re- that grinds my freaking gears as I hate that shit um, is it, it should be about development, doing things the right way um and not twitter battles and these different types of things um that's that's what's going to make us better as a field um is is focus on development and having integrity and doing things right and listening and asking questions not trying to be the smartest person in the room
Absolutely. I, I agree. I, I came from the same mindset. I mean, I've only I've done this for about, about 10 years, but that's the same thing. Right. It wasn't until COVID. I started the podcast and I started putting stuff out there. But before that, it was is this good enough to, to share? Right. Can I am I comfortable enough to explain this to my likability in order to put it out there? And I think the point you bring up is great that you have people on Instagram and they don't really know what they're doing, but they have an opinion. Right. And I think the the old school way, I guess you can call it that it wasn't whether or not it was right or wrong. It brought you up the right way, because, you know, when you were an intern in the beginning, you didn't speak. You got Gatorade and you stood there. I mean, I remember at TCU, my first month, they let me use my whistle once. I eventually got my whistle privileges taken away, but that's a different story. But just the things we did, you didn't talk. We didn't coach people. None of that. And then, you know, I've had kids where they come in and they're like, all right, who am I coaching? And I'm like coaching you're, you're going to stand there and you're going to take notes and not touch anything and then at the end you know we'll go over some stuff so I think that whole you know that growing up before you can be where your feet are right and to make great you said that I had a coach who used to say that all the time you know to all the players what do you mean well be where you are right don't worry about it forward behind kind of understand where you are and stay grounded but I think the thing with social media is that you know people they, they want to get to be a master of things in 10 minutes you know, and you can't do that because as a coach, your experience and your interactions with people over time is what makes you a good coach. It's not how many books you read or other things. And I think that's great. You know, two ears, one mouth. You have to listen. You have to learn from people. And when you as a as a I think it's just a respect thing. When you have somebody who's smarter than you or just has done this before, you don't cut them off. You don't talk over them. You let them be and you learn from them. You know, and I think there is a lot of that. There's guys that are, I see it all the time. You know, they're these big, huge things. And I'm like, well, how old are they? Oh, they're 23. Where were they? Oh, they played two years of junior college. And now they're an expert at strength conditioning. And, you know, the ones that I don't like, and this is the problem I have, the ones that are very like hostile and they like argue with you. And I'm like, why are we yelling? Right. This isn't, this shouldn't be a thing, but it's, you know, you can see it right away. I'm sure, you know, you had the experience. You've done this a while. Right away, you can tell people, you know, you ask them a question and right away, they're, they're jumping down your throat based on something when all you want to know is the information. So I think the other thing on that is not that, you know, only people have big social medias, but then they get kind of like they covet their information and then they want to get angry when you ask them questions. And I'm a believer in, I don't care what you do. You can light your athletes on fire. If you can sit me down and explain to me why that works and why that, you know, biochemically works for the athletes and makes them better, I'm all ears. Yeah, I, I think, you know, just speaking about this, what, what you're seeing with the information age is technical acumen is far exceeding uh, personal skills, communication skills, and the ability to contextualize everything, right? Like you can become, and there are 25, 26 year olds who are light years ahead of me in different areas. And I, and I respect that. That's so why I try and bring them on my staff and learn from them in different areas, but it far exceeds their ability to, to communicate, to work in groups, to contextualize their information and knowledge and apply it practically and that's kind of the problem that I think we're seeing in the field is you can become an, an expert from a knowledge standpoint in all these disciplines within performance much quicker nowadays than you could previously. And that there's a, there's an imbalance between that and your ability to practically apply these concepts. Yep. Uh, absolutely. I, I was talking to a friend in the minor leagues and, and I've heard it over and over. This guy is great at Canapult. This guy is great at, this he made an entire program where we can look up guys Nordic strength from two years ago, but he can't talk to the players. 
He can't be in a group of them and he can't relay information. It's a disaster. He can't even talk to his staff, right? You get this kind of sociotic, narcissistic personality where they're in the office, you know, and this isn't everybody, but this is just stuff I've heard where they're all about the computer. They're all about the technology, but they can't talk to players. So then they berate you for getting too close to players, but then they expose you on the technology part because they're trying to gain kind of points. And I think that's great. I, same thing I've seen in professional too. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so what is, uh, what's next for the future for you, for the program? Uh, what would you like to see happen? Uh, we could even, you know, and, and let's minus COVID, right? Just, just mm -hmm. in a straight line. I know, you know, we hope COVID's going, everybody, everybody hopes that, but what are, what are kind of some of your goals for the upcoming season and, and what would you like to see going further? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, for us and our department is yeah obviously getting back to normal with COVID first, but a couple important initiatives were kind of working really on practice planning with our, our various head coaches and and the concept of of tactical periodization. So, like you alluded to, that marriage between the physical and the technical staff and our our performance models at Clemson is something that we're really focused on and, and trying to evolve. So. Uh, one of the teams I work with men's soccer, um, we kind of set the stage for a lot of that and kind of use as an example for some other teams in terms of how we, we communicate and practice plan and do these different things and involve all the different technologies. So, you know, it's, the challenge for me is as a director and being here for a, a good while is the relationship I have with coach Noonan and men's soccer and coach Lee and baseball, um, it's easier. We've, we've, we've been together for a long time, but when you have moving parts of your assistance with all the other coaches is, um, you know, creating and then maintaining and evolving that momentum that you're building in those different areas. And, and really it's, you know, as this, as this evolves in the collegiate setting, it's more and more uh, a performance team working together to plan, to practice plan, to evaluate, to assess, to go through return to play, all these different things. So that's, that's our biggest objective uh, right now. And then we're also uh, trying to do some things across campus to, uh, to help offset some of the financial impact, obviously COVID has had uh, through partnerships and other things to try and increase our resources, uh, both budgetarily, but also from a manpower standpoint. So just trying to get creative with those types of things. But, um, you know, I, I think particularly, you know, ANSA model and coming across COVID is you, you never know what's ahead and you have, we had to shut down for a while and then start back up. And then we had a longer winter break than ever is the better you are at these processes uh, and the more collective you are um, and working through these processes, the easier you're going to be able to handle um adversity in these situations that you, you can't foresee happening. So that's kind of been our main objective as a department. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think COVID uh, forced you to be prepared. And if you weren't prepared to learn how to be prepared, I just want to ask a question because I thought of it while you were going through that. So when you, as a, as a whole, you know, as a group, as a staff, when you find a new piece of technology or maybe you want to try a, a new block, do you usually implement, implement that? on a smaller, like well-oiled team that you have before you sit, like, let's just say as example, we'll try it on soccer and then yeah. next year we'll put it to football. Is that kind of how you go through implementing some of the stuff? Yeah, Joe, you hit it now on the head and that's exactly how we do it. So um, 
I remember when we first got GPS 2015, it was the, the polar team pro. We just started with men's soccer. And then from there, the next year we had the women's soccer. And then the next two or three years, we had baseball, softball, the tennises. Um, and now, now we use catapult we use it uh, across seven different Olympic sports. So again, yes, we want to, a team that we feel comfortable can handle it from a process, from a value standpoint, um, build momentum with it, learn from it. Um, and the thing, like, that's exactly what you hit upon. I've been here for a long time, established certain relationships. So if certain things, which there will always be, don't go as well as planned, okay, I can handle taking that hit, right? Versus, you know, a new assistant that I brought in two months ago. So uh, I'd much rather go through some of the lumps of learning it and, and all that so we can, we can evolve it work on our processes and then apply it uh, with our other teams and with our other coaches at a little bit um, uh, easier scenario. Cause we've kind of already learned from mistakes and from experience. Awesome. Yeah. I think that's great to be able to, you know, use your team and, and use the people you have in place to test things out. I think that's something that, that is, is kind of lost. You know, if you have a new program, you know, and, and people out there listen, if you're a coach, you can use it on some of your players, you know, make sure it's not insane, but they're there to use that thing. Cause if it's going to help them, then you can use it. You know, I think a lot of times whole groups or, or staffs or, or just in general philosophies don't grow because they're afraid to implement the stuff or they don't know how to, uh, you know, add that in there, you know, little by little. And I think that's great that you, you have coaches and you have teams, you know, Hey, we just got in the new catapult system. We just got aura rings. Let's just say, mm-hmm. I know that this coach is going to be, gung-ho for it because every you know he understands that it works and his team you know he's got them you know in a line where they do everything that he asked so we won't have any pushback right as opposed to we ordered 700 fitbits we're going to go shove them on the football team and see what happens yeah no absolutely it's been tried and true and it certainly uh worked for us over the last several years yeah absolutely so uh rick for anybody that wants to uh, i know you spoke about the instagram that wants to contact you where is the best place to send you a message, uh, yeah. you know, and, and get some information? Yeah, uh, I can I can share my email. You have my email. Uh, then also Twitter. Um, pretty busy with both soccer and baseball being in season in the spring. For the first, that's the first time that's ever happened. So I haven't been on there too much. But um, Twitter, email, best places. And then um, the rest of my staff runs our Clemson Ollie Strength Instagram. But I, I have access to it, too, as well. Uh, so, any of those means, uh, and usually I'm pretty good about it. If, if I somehow overlook it, just hit me up again, and I'm sure I'll, I'll get back to whoever. Absolutely. Uh, I'll put that Instagram handle on the promotion uh, on the Instagram, and what I'll do is, too, I'll, I'll, if that's okay with you, I'll stick the email on the bottom yeah. uh, just because, you know, it's easier just to get to you through the email as opposed to going through the whole staff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Perfect. All right. Well, Rick, thank you so much for coming on. I, I love the conversation. I, I love the direction we went in. And I think we got a lot of a lot of good information and a lot of good stuff out there for, for anybody listening. Yeah, no, thanks. Appreciate it, Joe. Thank you. Thank you.